So if you bow with me, word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the joy that we celebrate. The joy of your love, your grace, your mercy, that we celebrate your coming, Lord. We can look at the decorations and look forward to many things, including being with loved ones or, or just celebrating Christmas. Thank you, Lord God. Lord, we pray as we get into your word that you would speak. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Teach us more about you. And may we just sit at your feet. Thank you, Lord God, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the previous message, I mentioned some of the difficulties about parenting, and I mentioned before about it's hard as a parent to watch your children struggle, right, if you remember that a couple of Sundays ago. And another aspect of parenting that you really, parents don't really enjoy is discipline. At least they shouldn't, right? Parents should enjoy, should not be enjoying that part. It's not easy or comfortable having to discipline your children. And some kids are like, I don't know, my parents seem to really enjoy it. They do it a lot. But it's very difficult, right? It's not easy. In your families, is there one who's more of the disciplinarian in your family? I don't know if you're comfortable raising your hand, so you don't have to, because if your parents are here, you don't want to confess it. But who's, the, who's in your home? All right, I'll ask the adults, okay, since your, your parents are probably already here. In your, in your family, who, it was your mom the main disciplinarian? Who in your family, your mom was the main disciplinarian? All right, how many of you, your dad was the main disciplinarian? Some of you just feel traumatized even thinking about it. You can't even raise your hands, right? You're afraid that your mom or dad may somehow find it, right? Were you scared more of your mom? How many of you are scared more of your mom? Scared more of your dad? How many of you are still scared? <laughs> yeah, all right, you're, you're looking like you're still scared. Um, do you remember there was like this one punishment that you remember the most? Do you remember? The one punishment that you remember the most. Now, I'm not trying to brag, but the one punishment I remember was actually not given to me by my parents. And I honestly don't remember my parents ever punishing me. I had this not a brag, all right? Maybe they just didn't get to me or something like that. Maybe just they thought yelling was enough, right? I don't know. But actually, the one punishment I remember getting the most when I was a kid was by my sisters. I forget which one it was. I forget which sister it was, but they caught me doing something. You know what they caught me doing? I was about like five years old at the time. They caught me watching a daytime soap opera. I think it was like Days of Our Lives or something like that. Now I'm five. Now some of you are like, "What is that?" All right, because days, uh, daytime soap operas aren't really a thing as much anymore. But I remember they caught me watching it once, and I'm a kid. I don't really know what I'm watching. You know, I think I might have seen a couple kissing, or I don't know if it was anything else. I don't know what it was. But they caught me, and they punished me by, like, taking TV away from me. That might have only been a few days, but a few days for a kid is like a month, right? And so that was a big deal for me. Um, and so I can remember that that was like torture for me. And that's really kind of like the main punishment thing I remember. My parents didn't punish me. Maybe because I was good at getting away with it. I don't know. 
But it made me think about punishment and, and disciplining your kids. And as a parent for myself and Jamie, when we had to discipline our kids, it was really important to us to teach them the lesson of grace and mercy. Even in discipline, to be able to teach the concepts of grace and mercy. There are times when our children deserved a punishment, but we showed them mercy, right? And there are times when they may not have deserved a gift or might have deserved reward, but we showed them grace. Perhaps you can relate to that as a parent or as a child, but it was important for us to want to teach them those concepts of grace and and mercy. And if you've been in church long enough, if you've heard about grace and mercy, right, it's often taught that grace and mercy is described as getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve, right? I mean, you've heard that before, right? That's a good starting point to understand the differences between grace and mercy. Receiving what you don't deserve or getting what you don't deserve. Wait, wait. Did I say the same thing twice? I think I said the same thing two different ways. Not getting what you do deserve and getting what you don't deserve. The Hebrew word translated for grace is also translated as favor, right? Favor, grace, or acceptance. And the context usually in Scripture involves someone in a position of authority showing favor or kindness, right? Some action benefiting another person or the other. We see the same usage in the New Testament, right? It's commonly uh, interpreted as grace, right? Grace is a gift from God for the benefit of the other. And we're in this season of gift giving, right? It's funny, some of us as kids, we grew up, it's Christmas time, so we assume that parents are supposed to give us gifts, right? Or on our birthday, we expect gifts given to us. And isn't that a little backwards, right? On our birthday, we expect to be given gifts. But I'm sure many moms are like, hey, you know what? It's because of me you're in this world. You should be giving me a gift on your birthday, right? That should be a celebration of me every year, right? But we think of gifts as like some kind of automatic thing, that we deserve to get. But when you give a gift that represents this concept of grace, something you give that you don't need to give, but you give it for the benefit of the other person, right? How many of you were your parents' favorite child? Any of you want, I I forgot, this is what I was going to say. Point to the person you think was your parents' favorite child. And you want to point to me? You want to point like that? Anyone like that? Any of you just kind of had that, that concept in your family? Yeah, you're smart. He didn't point to anybody. <laughs> he didn't, he, he did no pointing, right? All right, we'll take it out of the family context. How many of you believe that you are your teacher's favorite ch- student? Yeah, okay, there's, there's one person. All right, two people, right? When I was in the school as a teacher and even as the dean, occasionally I would have some students say, hey, Mr. Kim, I'm your favorite, huh? I'm your favorite student. And in my mind, I'm thinking, if I'm being honest, 
Why would I ever think you're my favorite? (laughs) You are acting up every single day. Just because you're in my office every day doesn't mean you're my favorite, right? And there are some students like that. They'll say, oh, my teacher hates me. And those are usually the students that are acting up every single day. Or then those same students say, oh, I'm your favorite, Mr. So-and-so, right? We always want someone's favor, and we kind of, whether we deserve it or not, we want to receive someone's favor or grace or gifts. We've seen that in Scripture, God may show grace or favor in response to an individual or people, right? We saw these two passages last week in Psalm 84:11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 echoes these same words. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So even when God responds to people, you can be sure, though, that God is purposeful and intentional, even with his favor. If we even were to think about, I don't know how many times you've asked God, God, can you just show me your favor? Do we ever think about, if he shows us his favor, what will that do for us? Do we honor seek, to seek God? To say, you know, God, there's a, a purpose and meaning that you want to show me favor, that, Lord, I want to make it meaningful? Or are we just wanting a favor from God? We just want some kind of gift from God and just move on to the next situation. We've been seeing Noah, and we saw in chapter 6 that we saw that God shows favor to one man among an evil generation. And that one man was Noah. And Noah was described as righteous, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God. And that he showed himself obedience. And he showed himself faithful. And that contrasts with what God describes the world in at the time, right? When God looked upon the world, how did he see the world? That it was exceedingly wicked. The thoughts and tensions of the hearts of man was evil continually. It was filled with violence and it had corrupted. Man corrupted their own way and it corrupted what God had intended and created. So we see this too, very contrasting image. Here was Noah in a wicked generation and world. So God declared judgment upon mankind for their wickedness and he instructed Noah to build an ark. And we're picking up in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. We ended last week with verse 1. We'll start it up in verse 1. Genesis chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Now again, we see this emphasized about Noah here in verse 1. You alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Emphasized here again. Now we should be encouraged by this. 
We should be encouraged by the fact that God says, I see you, that you are righteous before me in your generation. How, why is that encouraging to us? How many of you have ever felt alone, like you tried to be honoring to God? You tried to do the right thing, but everybody else around you seems to be doing the exact opposite. And maybe you can relate to the feeling that, you know what, that's a lonely place to be in. You feel like you're the only one who's trying to be honoring to God, and you look all around you and everyone else is doing the opposite. And you're like, God, what am I doing here? No one else seems to care. Why am I even bothering? It's encouraging for us to know that God sees. And he sees when you're trying to be honoring to him. Especially when you're in an environment where no one else cares to, right? Verse 2. You shall, God saying, you shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Once again, emphasize, Noah obeyed everything that God had commanded him. So here we see that God, again, repeats his instructions to Noah. God will bring the animals, both male and female of each kind, over to Noah. Why? To keep the offspring alive, to keep them alive so it's interesting, we see again the value that God places, not only male and female, right? Or we saw that this is how God designed from the very beginning, male and female, distinct, intended to perpetuate life. And even in the animal world, <laughs> the animal kingdom, he says, I'll bring two of each kind so that they can continue to live. So God repeats his instruction. We mentioned last week, though, or at least I mentioned last week, that God could have wiped everything out. And many people have asked, why didn't God just wipe everything out? Why didn't he just start all over from scratch, create a new Adam, create a new Eve, all right, a new man, a new woman, created a whole bunch of new animals instead? Well, God had a different plan. Verse 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, 
and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. So God gives Noah a seven-day countdown before he brings the floodwaters upon the earth. Both clean, interesting, both clean and not clean animals are brought to Noah Male and female of each kind. So this should really kind of remind us back in Genesis 1 and 2, right? How God created the animals, male and female. And in chapter 2, when he was going to provide Adam a helper, and he brought all the animals to, to Adam for him to call and to name, right? Here God brings all the animals to Noah. And Noah's family entered the ark along with the animals that God had brought. It's interesting, if you read chapter 7, that their entrance into the ark is emphasized. Seven times in this chapter, it's emphasized in chapter 7 alone that they had to enter the ark, mentioned two times in chapter 6. It's kind of interesting, like, why did he have to continue to repeat that? Maybe some of you, your parents, tell you the same things over and over again, right? You're like, why are you saying this again? You're telling me, like, this is your fifth time saying it, right? I got it. I got it. But God tells Noah, and it's an emphasis in chapter 7, that they are to enter the ark. They all had to enter the ark as God instructed in order for them to live. So again, why didn't God just wipe it all clean? Why didn't he just start all over? Don't even give them an opportunity again to disobey. Just start all over from scratch. I've thought about that too, right? If God were to wipe everything clean and just start all over, if everything started just the same, how long do you think it would be before God could justifiably just wipe everything out once again? Wipe it out clean again. Right? A lot of people who ask that question, like, well, why didn't God just God intervene when it gets too evil? But let me ask you, at what point would you think it's too evil? At what point would you ask God to intervene when things get really bad? Right? Murder? Okay, if someone murders, then God can intervene and just stop it and just wipe it all clean. Violence? Sexual morality? Unfaithfulness? Lying? See, we, we think that God should intervene when things get really bad. But see, our concept of really bad and God's concept of really bad, it doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. But if we look closely at what God is doing with the ark and the flood, we see a much bigger purpose unfolding. God is establishing a pattern, a precedence, and a foreshadowing of a greater plan of redemption and salvation. Let's look at those features of the flood account, what we've seen all the way going back from four weeks ago until now. 
So we know that what led up to the flood was that there was a problem, and the problem was there was evil and corruption to the point where God said, enough is enough, right? God's response was that there will be a just judgment. There's going to be a just judgment, right? He was grieved in his heart from what he saw, He said, enough is enough. So what is God going to do? He's going to wipe the earth clean of the evil, right? He's going to blot man out. And he was going to bring upon what is deserved. God will bring ruin to what man had ruined. Man was going to receive just punishment. We see God, though, even in the midst of judgment, that he shows favor and mercy. Noah found favor with God. Noah was the lone righteous man in an evil generation, and he found God's favor. And so with that man, God makes a covenant of salvation. God makes a covenant with Noah. That word covenant means, well, covenant or a pledge, right? Usually there's a sign or some kind of pledge of action on behalf of the person or persons, right? A promise, I will do this for you. And oftentimes there's a mutual pledge, if you do this for me. This covenant relationship based on a pledge, a promise, right? What's the modern day pledge or form of covenant that we know of? Marriage, right? When you take your marriage vows, you are making a covenant with each other. Not only with each other, but if you're believers in Christ, you're making a covenant with each other and who? And God. So when you do the vows, right? How many of you have ever been to a wedding ceremony? I've, I've been, had the honor and privilege to do weddings. When you get to the vows, is it just one person saying, I promise to do this, 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 till death do us part? And the other person's like, we'll see. We'll see if you leave up to, live up to the pledge. No, it's a vow, right? That's what a covenant is. And then the ring is your sign of your pledge, your covenant. And so God makes a covenant with Noah. God spares a remnant. God spares Noah's family. Because they are of his household. Notice, God doesn't describe Noah's family as being righteous. He didn't say, you and your wife are righteous. He didn't say, your boys have been righteous before me. Or they married righteous women. It was Noah. And because of Noah's household, they were able to enter the ark. God provides a means for the continuance of life because he brings a remnant of animals, two of each kind. His sons and their wives, him and his wife. So God protects a remnant from what he creates and he allows them to continue to live or give life. God provides a means of salvation, if you will, deliverance, right, through this wooden ark. Now notice, God doesn't say build a boat. This word for ark is unique. It's only mentioned, this word for ark, is only mentioned one in one other context in the Old Testament. How many of you can know what other context? 
this word for ark is used in the Old Testament. Maybe some of you know. It's a much smaller version. The only other context this word is used was used to describe what they put baby Moses in. The wool basket. Why? To keep him alive. And they put him in the basket into the river, right? Same word. Same word. God provides a means of protection and salvation through this ark. So he says, build this ark. And he says to build it and cover it with pitch. This word, cover it with pitch, to coat. Now it's interesting, this word cover and pitch here. I don't know if I'm, did I? Okay, I wanted to mean to back up. This word for cover and pitch is unique. In all other contexts, in the Old Testament, this word to cover, this verb used for cover, is often used in the context of making atonement to cover over, to go, cover over something, to make atonement. And this word for pitch right here in the context is saying like a caulking kind of thing. If you're ever like trying to cover something to caulk it so to make sure there's no leaks and anything like that, right? That's the context. But in other contexts, this word is used to make atonement. So it's kind of interesting, this context, we see it that in functionality, it's like to cover the boat inside and out so there's no leaks or anything like that. But in all the other contexts that these words are used is to, to cover over, to make atonement with a ransom price. This word for caulking or pitch in other contexts is used to describe a ransom or price of life. So it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, you know, in other contexts, it's being used to cover over with a ransom price. But here in the, the boat, in the ark, if you will, it means to cover inside and out. It's kind of interesting. Here this vessel is to cover and atone with a ransom price. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Double meaning? You can do with that as you will. We also see God's sovereign hand in this situation. God declared judgment based on what he saw. God showed favor to Noah. God brought the animals to Noah. God gave the instructions. God executed his judgment. And we see here God closed the door on the ark. Noah's faith and obedience displayed. Noah had faith in God's promises and covenants. He had faith that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. God, he, Noah had faith that he would be delivered. He receives this word from God that he's bringing judgment, and Noah had the faith that God was going to deliver him. Why? Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God and knew enough to trust God and have the faith that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And he will be protected. He and his family and even the ridiculous scene of all these animals coming, he still had the faith and obedience in the Lord. Now let me ask you, does this pattern ring a bell? This, is, this whole scenario and scene, does it ring a bell? Do you see what God is doing with the flood? 
God is already making a case of establishing his future purpose of what he's going to do. The Lord is establishing a precedence of faith for the ultimate and final means of salvation. He's foreshadowing. Look, you see the scenario? This is just a foreshadowing so that you would understand and believe what will ultimately happen. The ultimate plan of redemption and salvation. Look at today. The problem still exists that there's evil and corruption in the world, right? The sinfulness of man. Even after the flood, man's sinfulness survives. Man continues to corrupt their way. And in fact, God's response is still going to be there will be just judgment upon sin. There will be judgment upon sin. But God's covenant of salvation remains. God remembered his creation and he establishes a new covenant with them. But that new covenant is going to be marked with what? Marked with blood. It will not be the floodwaters that washes away sin. It's going to be the blood of Christ that washes away sin. It will be the blood of the atoning sacrifice that will wash away sin. God spares a remnant. God will spare a remnant. A remnant made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Those who were once considered unclean will be saved as well. It's interesting to note that God specifies here both the clean animals and the animals that are not clean both enter the ark, this picture of it. It's meaningful when the Israelites are reading this, but it becomes even more meaningful in the time of the church when God says, look, both clean and unclean, what was considered clean and unclean before are allowed to enter in to receive salvation. We see God's sovereign hand. God's sovereign hand will always carry out his purposes. I'll repeat that again. God's sovereign hand will always carry out his purposes. God saw, God declared, God commanded, and God will shut the door. When all the animals were in, all the people were in, he shut the door. And as I mentioned last week, there is a point where God will say, enough is enough. It's time for judgment upon evil and sinfulness. Noah's faith and obedience displayed. Faith and obedience will be rewarded with the gift of salvation. God's favor and mercy through one righteous man, the animals and his household was saved. Through one, and if you remember, I'm going to clarify if you haven't been with us, just because it describes Noah as having been righteous and blameless in his generation, it's not saying he was perfect, it's not saying he was sinless. He desired to do what was right before God. He desired to do right before God. But what was to come was that there will be one righteous man who will be blameless, who will be sinless, who will be the one who will be righteous before God. And that Jesus was fully righteous, fully blameless, 
fully sinless and was with God from the beginning. It's kind of interesting if you look in Luke, how Luke describes Jesus sandwiched between Jesus' childhood experience with the temple and his ministry is this phrase in Luke 2.52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now you could think about that, explain that all you want, but it's kind of interesting that Luke makes it a point to describe and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So you look back in Genesis 6, what is happening here? We see that Noah is the first of many who will take on the role of deliverer. This role foreshadows the role that Jesus will play. And you'll see that in the story throughout the Old Testament. God raised up these leaders and they will be this type, this foreshadowing of what Jesus will ultimately fulfill and do. And it's great, right, for us, our human minds, because now we see, okay, here's a case that God is making to believe. It wasn't just like one time that Jesus popped up and, and claimed to do something and did it. But God, throughout the pattern of what he did in his relationship with his people, says, look, I'm going to give you some hints. I'm going to show you what I will do, I will purpose to do, so that you may believe that what I do is truth. God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. And you look at throughout all scripture leading up to Jesus, all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, are all pointing to Jesus. Foreshadowing what he was going to do. And then after Jesus came and resurrected and ascended, and thereon after, Faith is looking back at what Jesus did, but also looking forward to when Jesus comes back. So we're kind of sandwiched in between his first coming, him fulfilling what the scripture said he was going to do, and we're waiting for him to come back again. How many have ever been caught off guard? You were not prepared for what was going to happen. Maybe you were driving and you totally passed all these signs and you didn't know that you were entering a dead end, right? You got so distracted. It's interesting, Jesus warned the people of his second coming and he describes it as being like the days of Noah in Matthew 24. He says, For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus describes and warns in those days. What's he saying? In the evil generation of that day, they were just living life as they normally would. Marrying, giving in marriage, they were just going about it just like everything was normal. And they didn't see, they didn't understand and they were caught off guard. They weren't ready. We don't want to be caught unaware. We don't want to be so caught up. See, in our daily lives, right, in our daily schedules and life, in our busyness, family, work, whatever it may be, we can get so busy and just take day by day by day by day and not notice the times we're living in and get so caught up 
And we don't want to get caught unaware of the times we're living, so caught up in the business of our lives that we're not looking around us and seeing like, God, man, not only it looks like you're coming, I don't know how, when that may be, maybe in my generation, your generation, I don't know. But I, I look around, I said, man, God, I don't know how much worse it can get. I know it's going to, but man, I hope you come soon. I hope my daily life isn't so important to me that that looks better than when you come back, when you come soon. I started to the message talking about discipline and remembering being punished. How many remember when you got away with something that you should have gotten punished for? How many remember something that, like, this was your biggest heist? In other words, you got away with something so big, your parents still don't know yet. Don't worry, I'm not asking you to confess it. I'll leave that to you and the Lord. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I'm sure we can think of many times we got away with something we should have been punished for. And can you imagine thinking about how many times God showed us mercy? showed us kindness. How many times God could have said, hey, that's enough. How many times did God show us grace when we didn't deserve it? He showed us his kindness. Way too many to count. Way too many to count. That's the God we serve. That's a merciful God, even in the midst of all that we see going on around us. God is merciful to us. He is kind to us. Last week I mentioned, turn to somebody and say, I'm so glad you're not God, right? Aren't you glad we are not God? Aren't you glad God doesn't treat us with the level of mercy and grace that we do to other people? We can be very unmerciful to people, very ungracious to people, and yet plead for God's mercy and grace. Next week, we're going to look at, we're going to take a break from Genesis and look at, focus on Christmas, why we're celebrating Christmas, why Jesus. But as we're reminded of his mercy and grace, let that be a lesson for us, right, this season. If you may not give any gifts, this, <laughs> parents are going to be like, all right, I'm not going to give you a gift, but I'm just going to give you the gift of grace and mercy, right? I don't know if that's going to work. <laughs> but let's remember God's mercy and grace to us. His kindness, his favor, his forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord God, in judgment, Lord God, you are just. We don't deserve your favor. We don't deserve gifts. We don't deserve mercy. But yet, Lord, you extend that. You extend your favor. You extend your mercy. Lord, I pray you would humble us.
Humble us, Lord God, that we would recognize, Lord, I'm, I'm not deserving. But thank you for extending it to me. Thank you, Lord God, that you didn't just take me out, but you're extending your arms of mercy and love and forgiveness. And that, Lord, if there's someone who feels undeserving of your love, undeserving of your grace, undeserving of your forgiveness, undeserving of your mercy, that, Lord, you would remind them that you know, you see them, but it's a gift that you offer for them to receive if they'd only believe and trust, believe and trust in you that you are who you say you are and you will do what you say you will do. Thank you, Lord God being a God who's worthy to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.